today on Ag News Daily. But the problem we're, we have now is we have this declining demand, especially for corn, where you have the problems with exports out of the United States, which, which are causing issues. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here, co-host of the Ag News Daily podcast, joined by Delaney Howell. Delaney, how are you today? I am good, Mike. I'm actually sitting off the side of a highway, kind of parked in somebody's driveway where they pull into a cornfield. So I'm hoping nobody comes up and taps me on the window to ask what I'm doing. But uh, I'm on my way this afternoon to work with some pork producers over in eastern Iowa. So I got to do the podcast on the road today, but it'll be good. That is all right. But give us the update on the cornfield whose entrance you're parked on the way into. Is it harvested or not? Yes, it is. But my boyfriend and I did quite a bit of traveling this weekend with Thanksgiving. And so we got to see quite a few cornfields on the eastern half of the state that were still not picked yet along I-80. There's still quite a bit of corn needing to be picked. 218 uh, Highway South, 218 South had some corn still needing to be picked up around the Marshalltown area. For those of you that know IOL, still have some cornfields to be picked. So it'll be interesting to see what today's crop progress report brings. Yes, it will. And just a reminder to our listeners, last week is the typical end of USDA's crop progress reports. But due to the delayed harvest this year, USDA did announce they are going to continue to release those reports until further notice. So as Delaney mentioned, we'll just have to keep an eye out for this afternoon and see exactly what gets reported. It'll be interesting, too, to see if they continue out until February, March, April, when some of those fields, especially up in the Dakotas, probably are likely going to get harvested. I wonder if they'll continue doing reports that long or how they're going to handle that. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a wait-and-see game. They said they're going to evaluate it on a week-by-week basis. So, I mean, it's anybody's guess right now. It sure is. Another thing that's anybody's guess right now, Mike, is what's going on in the trade scene. We are seeing lawmakers return from their Thanksgiving break this week, and they've got a full slate of issues to deal with, including impeachment, which I don't even want to get into that subject on the podcast. I'm just going to leave that one aside, but that is taking up a lot of their time, as well as the December 20th deadline to keep the government funded. However, it does sound like some folks are optimistic that we will see a House vote on the USMCA agreement because U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer and his Mexican counterpart met last week, and Jesus Siede, I believe is how you pronounce his last name, who is Mexico's trade minister, said, quote, every single issue that has made me lose my sleep is off the table. We are on our way to a resolution. So it sounds like he is cautiously optimistic Um, But it does sound like House Democrats are still pressing Mexico to follow through on some of those enforcement mechanisms with the labor standards, which has been a holdup here for quite some time now. Gotcha. Well, we had another kind of an earthquake in the world of trade earlier today, Delaney. I I know you're on the road. Maybe you didn't see this. Oh, no, I don't think I have. Yeah, early this morning, President Donald Trump said he is going to immediately reinstate tariffs on steel and aluminum coming from Brazil and Argentina, specifically because they, he is accusing them of uh, massively devaluing their currencies in order to help their farmers. So this is quite troublesome uh, in the world of trade. This has sent uh, aluminum and steel prices 
you know, uh, rattling through the day as, as traders try to figure out, okay, what does immediately mean? Does this mean tomorrow? Does it mean a week from now? When are these tariffs actually going to go into effect? Brazil and Argentina are shaken. Uh, Yair Bolsonaro of Brazil has said he's going to reach out to President Trump and try to explain that they are not, you know, trying to devalue their currency. Both countries are just dealing with an economic crisis, and that is why their currencies are so low. Um, but apparently President Trump is doing this to try and help build support among U.S. agriculture as we continue to see a lot of Chinese ag purchases head down to South America due to the cheapness of their currencies. Yeah, that's definitely helped with some stuff on the U.S. front. Definitely exports as well. But Mike, I've got one other big headline here that dropped this morning between the U.S. and the U.K. trade talks. Apparently some higher level working groups leaked a letter that are discussing the Trump administration's process to a fast-paced negotiation between the UK and the US. And it sounds like, from what they were talking about, sounds like it's expected to be a pretty low, you know, even smooth sailing agreement. And sounds like it's supposed to be done pretty fast. I haven't seen the letter or the details of the document that were leaked other than what has been reported in the news today. Um, but it definitely is apparently being seen as a political win for President Trump's run for 2020. Okay. All right. Yeah. I wasn't expecting a whole lot of headaches on that front. No. But, uh, you never know with these trade negotiations. No, you do not. Um, we've got one piece of news here out of John Deere. They reported their quarterly and, uh, yeah, excuse me, their quarterly sales data. And they said that uh, net sales are up 4% for the fourth quarter and 5% for the full year on the backs of construction and forestry and turf. Agriculture continues, not shockingly, to be a slow area of sales for John Deere. Um, in their report, they said, the performance reflected continued uncertainties in the agricultural sector. Lingering trade tensions coupled with a year of difficult growing and harvesting conditions have caused many farmers to become cautious about making major investments in new equipment. Not shocking to a lot of our listeners, but it was still interesting to me that John Deere managed to uh, find some black ink for the year, but uh, again, largely on the back of construction and uh, forestry and turf. That was the other category. All right. Well, yeah, I saw that come out on Friday as well about John Deere. So it sounded like, too, they were forecasting a weaker ag economy moving forward, but uh, sounded like... But, but actually, to follow up with that, I have some news, Mike, about what producers can expect for their bottom line for the next year. So getting into it a little bit here with the MFP payments first, I think either you or I reported on the podcast before that these direct government payments of crop insurance benefits of indemnities minus the premiums will account for, I think you'd previously reported 40%, and it sounds like a new report is now saying it'll account for about 31% of total farm net income this year. About $92.5 billion in net farm income is expected to come directly from those government payments. However, looking ahead, I thought this was exciting news because it looks like really all sectors of agriculture except for poultry production are expected to see production numbers and earnings soar 
in 2020. It looks like, you know, we go in cyclical patterns. It looks like perhaps the end of this down cycle is coming to an end for agriculture. Well, that would be good news. Um, I know everybody would be happy to see this down cycle come to an end. Um, there is a great, or I shouldn't say a great article. There's an interesting article in Time Magazine. This was published, uh, I believe it was just earlier today. I'm only about halfway through it. It is a very long article focusing on the plight of small farmers. Specifically, the author, Alana Samuels, looks at smaller dairy operations and the struggles they have faced over the past uh, two years in particular, but, you know, the four-year five-year down cycle that has been happening in the dairy industry and what that has done for dairy producers, particularly increased consolidation in the sector. And it's very interesting. So I'd encourage our readers to check it out. The title is called, quote, they're trying to wipe us off the map. Small American farmers are nearing extinction. And it is a good look at the crises that is happening in Wisconsin and Michigan and Northeast Iowa and parts of Minnesota on these small dairy operations, and it, it tied into a, a lot other uh, issues, uh, corn and soybeans in particular, and so forth and so on. But um, it's very interesting. Well, that sounds interesting. I'll make sure and include it in this week's Global Ag Network newsletter, Mike. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, folks, be sure to sign up for that newsletter. You can do it by visiting our website. Go to globalagnetwork.com. We've got interesting news articles that we talk about on the podcast. We've got links to all of the other podcasts in the Global Ag Network and commentary on the commodities market from yours truly from uh, the Zaner Ag Hedge Group. That's right, Mike. Absolutely. So, folks, do get signed up for that. Mike, the only other piece of information or news I had for today... So we've definitely been having some end-of-the-year conversations here as news is slowing down and Congress was out for the week. But the Farm Bureau Federation put out a new analysis looking at H-2A visa worker programs for Q4 of 2019, which that fiscal year ended September 30th. So they're kind of compiling some of those numbers. And it did show an increase in H-2A or workers coming to us outside of the United States to come and work in agricultural settings. It showed about a 6% increase in those positions, but compared to other quarter fours of fiscal years, this is the smallest increase we've seen since 2012, which I thought was really interesting. So I don't know if it's because we're seeing more enforcement crackdown on having those workers. Are we seeing less of a need because we're moving more towards an autonomous agricultural system. I don't know what the answer is, but it does seem that workers are kind of dwindling. The numbers seem to be. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly does. And I've got to imagine the combination of all of those factors, Delaney. I, it could very well be, Mike. Well, speaking of dwindling, we saw the bean and wheat market prices dwindle today. So we jump in and see what happened in the rest of the commodities market, Delaney? Let's do it. All right, we did see a positive day for the corn market. And remember, folks, our markets are brought to us by our friends at agmarket.net. Be sure to check out their website and visit their new app on the Google Play and Amazon, or excuse me, Apple Play store. In the corn market, the December corn contract is up two and a quarter cents at 373 and a half. March up a penny at 382 and a quarter. In soybeans, January down five and three quarters at 871 even. The March down six cents to finish the day at 885 and a quarter. In Chicago wheat, December contract dropped one and a half pennies to finish at 546 even. March down six and a half, closed the day at 535 and a quarter. 
Looking over at livestock, weakness throughout the whole complex today. December live cattle off 45 cents at 120.75. February down 40, finished at 125.80. In feeder cattle, January down 12.5 cents, closed at 142.15. March unchanged on the day at 143.02.50. And weakness in lean hogs, December down a dollar sixty seven fifty at sixty thirty five. The February down two dollars two and a half cents, closed the day at sixty six fifteen. And in dairy, positive day in the dairy market. November, which of course has ended, we won't talk about that. The December contract up six cents at nineteen thirty six. The January up twenty cents on the day to close at nineteen oh one. Without further ado, we're going to kick it off to our Market Monday conversation with our good friend from the Great White North, Mr. Philip Shaw. Well, for today's hashtag Market Monday discussion, we've got Philip Shaw, who is a man of many hats. He is an agricultural economist up there in Dresden, Ontario. He farms. He writes commentary for DTN. He's a contributing editor there. And he also writes some columns for other farm and grain groups in Ontario. Philip, we are so excited to have you join us today. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Philip, tell us a little bit. Obviously, I, I kind of just glossed over your background there, but it is much more I- impressive than what I gave you credit for. Tell us about your background and how you got into your current roles today. Well, you're very kind. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, I have uh, I farm in uh, Dresden, Ontario, and years ago when I was a young guy, I went back and did my master's degree in agricultural economics. And after that, I started writing a column, an agricultural economic column for a local paper. And that that morphed into uh, bigger papers throughout Ontario. And then in 1994, I started writing for DTN in the United States and Canada on their system. And and so I still write for DTN every week. And so from there, it went on. I did uh, farm farm machinery reviews for a long time. I started writing more commodity commentary, and now I write the commodity commentary market trends for the grain farmers of Ontario, uh, across Ontario. And I write for several magazines here uh, in Canada on uh, grain markets. And I also write in French in Quebec, something that you're probably not very used to. So that's just some of the things I do, and I continue to farm. So, uh, And from time to time, I write questions and send them into market to market. I, I know Mike and you have seen <laughs> yes, those from time to time. Absolutely. <laughs> but it's, it's just a pleasure to speak with you both today. Absolutely, Phil. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Well, let's give an update from the ground up there in Canada. We talk a lot about crop progress here in the U.S. And, of course, the recent snowfall events that have hampered progress in the northern Great Plains. Those snows don't stop at the border. They've pushed their way on into Canada. Um, How is harvest progressing in your part of the world and then, of course, uh, in the greater Canadian area? Well, well, not only did you say you pushed it pushed it into across the border, you know, sometimes we're known on exporting cold weather and snow to the United States, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, but but keep in mind that keep in mind that uh Canada is a very different place. Uh it's more than than uh when it comes to agriculture, it's almost three different regions. One is Western Canada, one's Ontario, one's Quebec because of the French language. And um, with regard to the agriculture that 
I talk mostly about. It's I am more synonymous with Ohio and Michigan and Indiana and Illinois that type of that type of cropping here in Ontario uh, because I grow corn and soybeans and I speak about corn and soybeans all the way into Quebec and into the maritime provinces and. You, you know, you, you're right, you know, like you think you've got snow and cold. Uh, we've got, um, we've had a, quite a bit of snow throughout Ontario and Quebec, and it's really hindered the harvest in Ontario, and especially in Quebec. I, My goodness, I was looking at a Twitter, Twitter, Twitter feed last night of a Quebec producer near Drummondville, Quebec. Now, to give you an idea where that is, if you can picture Montreal, and you can picture Quebec City, you're at one of the most northern areas where you actually do grow corn. And he had put a special attachment on his header uh, to go through snow. And, and oh my goodness, it was something else to look at. So I asked him how much corn he had left. He had 600 acres, and then he had all his customers to do. Now, in Illinois, you know, that might be just a case of waiting it out until you get there. But the problem is when you get into more northern areas of Canada, uh, Canadian winter comes along and we get copious amounts of snow and cold. And, and then, of course, you have your wildlife, too. So it's been a it's been a very, very difficult fall and something that continues. And uh, I know a lot of uh, Canadian farmers, especially in eastern Canada, uh, are looking forward to this thing being over. I really can't comment on Western Canada too much. The agriculture is so different there, much more like North Dakota and Montana. Uh, but they've had their difficulties out there as well. Yeah, this year has just been such an abnormal one for grain producers really all over the northern hemisphere. But, Phil, as you're writing commentary each week, uh, how are you looking at the variables or the factors that are going on in the U.S. and also Canada? Because it sounds like you're doing business with some folks on both sides of the border. All the time, our prices here are based on uh, Chicago Board of Trade numbers, and and you know I'm closer. If you think about it, my farm is about 70 miles east of Detroit, so I'm on about the same latitude as a, a, a lot of the other people who listen to this podcast. Um, you know, from a Canadian perspective, it, it's been difficult the last two years, especially the geopolitical problems that we've seen. Um, because, you know, I'm not American, but of course we love our American friends and, you know, the president American administration has been pretty tough on American agriculture. And of course you've had a lot of different trade problems, uh, that have come up since the new administration came in in 2016. And from a Canadian perspective, when you saw a lot of the trade agreements ripped up, uh, including, including the one that you had with us since 1989, uh, it was a very, very difficult thing. And so to a large extent, you know, we saw these trade problems that came along uh, as kind of self-induced and the resultant uh, price decreases, especially in soybeans, was very, very difficult to see, you know. And, and of course, now we have, uh, you know, a pretty good soybean crop in the United States and a pretty good corn crop, but not as good as last year. But the problem we we have now is we have this declining demand, especially for corn, where you have the problems with exports out of the United States, which which are causing issues, as well as the problems with ethanol, because there's an erosion of what uh, uh, the mechanics behind that with regard to the government mandates and the RFS. And then, of course, you had about 14 million acres and prevent plant acres that didn't get planted this year in the United States, and most likely they'll be coming back in 
uh, next year. So you have eroding demand, and uh, you have this big supply coming. The bottom line is the future, the nearby futures price for corn is about uh, three dollars and eighty-two cents, and it's been uh, it's below eight dollars now. I'm sorry, below nine dollars now for for soybeans. So. You know, we have quite a few issues, and a lot of them have to do with trade, but but a lot has to do with the declining demand, especially for corn, in the United States. And of course, in Canada, we have our own trade issues because uh, it involves a Huawei executive that we arrested in Vancouver, and as soon as we did that, the Chinese uh, uh, stopped buying Canadian canola and pork and things like that, but they've, they've started buying pork again. And that was to honor an American extradition uh, request. So from Canadian perspective is, you know, pick your poison. Do you, um, do you tell the Americans, no, we're not going to do this? Or you tell the Chinese, we're going to let her go. So, you, you know, of course, we, we sided with the Americans and we've had the resultant trade problems. So, um, you know, it's different here versus where you are, but it's, it's the market factors that you're dealing with are the market factors that, that we have to think about as well. One big difference is, um, especially when you talk about basis, because you know how basis has been such a hot topic in the United States this year because of your hot basis market. In Canada, uh, you know, we deal with foreign exchange. So, so just like the Brazilian real right now is dropping like a stone, uh, in Canada, depending on what our exchange rate is, that affects our basis levels as well. Uh, but it acts similarly in, in psychology to when the Brazil real drops. When our currency drops, that makes our domestic prices higher. So it's a little bit different the way you look at grain prices, especially domestic prices up here. But that gives you a little bit synopsis of, of, of what it's like. Well, let's talk a little bit about those trade issues. You mentioned the end of NAFTA and the rebirth of it, in a sense, through uh, USMCA, which allegedly the U.S. Congress is going to get up to taking care of here as we get towards the first of the year. What's the consensus amongst agriculturalists in Canada about USMCA? How, do, how does the Canadian side feel about it? Well, I have written for years since the first free trade agreement in 1989. We've had free trade with the United States since 1989 or 90 when it was signed. But President Reagan was the one that negotiated that one. And, you know, corn trades freely across the border here every day, and so is soybeans. So uh, that has always been uh, the way it's been. But your biggest trading partner is Canada. You know, China's not even close, you know. and But, you know, I, w with regard to – so when the president administration tore up the free trade agreement after they got elected, I mean, it was it was – very telling. And we did what every Canadian administration has done since this country was formed. And that, and that is, you know, we have negotiated something new. And, you know, the Americans put uh, tariffs on our steel and our tariffs, uh, I'm sorry, our steel and our aluminum, even though that steel and aluminum, we're the biggest customer of American steel of aluminum, and you're our biggest customer. So we're putting tariffs on each other. And so it was a very difficult thing here because, you know, there was name calling across the border and and our prime minister doesn't have, uh, you know, we know he doesn't have as much power as the United States. We're much, much smaller. And so we tend to acquiesce. And, you know, I think right now uh, 
the Canadians are waiting till the U.S. Congress passes USMCA. It's called, it's something different here. It's called CUSMA, the Canada-U.S.-Mexico uh, Trade Agreement. Uh, but we're hoping that it's passed. But in terms of how it affects grain uh, in Canada, it, it really doesn't affect grain. It might affect, to some extent, uh, dairy access and things of that nature. Uh, but still, it's the biggest trading relationship in the world, and there's nothing close. So it is very, very important. Uh, however, there was no political desire to tear up the, the, the agreement that we had and that we were working on, because we've had free trade since the late 1980s between Canada and the United States. President Reagan is the one that negotiated it. And, and you know, I'm sure before the 2016 election, you didn't hear there's a real problem with the Canadians. we got to do something about it. I mean, you never heard that. You you certainly heard during the election campaign, though, uh, about immigration on your border, and you know some of the things that were said about your neighbors to you, to the south. But you never heard much about that to the north. So you know, we have responded from as from a Canadian perspective, like we always have, and negotiated and acquiesced and went to the WTO and all types of things. And it's the same thing now. We're just waiting to see if the U.S. Congress will pass this. And then we'll go from there. And I'm glad we're talking about bigger picture things with you today, Phil, because we have been on the podcast today as well. And so I guess I've got one final question for you. From where it stands today, when you look at the grain market, specifically corn, wheat, and soybeans, which commodity of those three are you most bullish about heading into 2020 here? Um. I'm not the best one to ask because my question is when people ask me where prices are going to go, I always say, I don't know, because, you know, I, I, I don't know, but I, I just list the market factors, but to try to be more specific about your question from a Canadian perspective, I would say corn. Okay. And, and, and the reason I would say that simply put, um, because corn is so productive and the annual productivity increases have been, um, you know, they've just been magnificent, whether it's in Illinois or whether it's in Ontario or whether it's in Iowa. Uh, annual productivity increases from the new genetics is, has just been, you know, it's exponential here in Ontario. For instance, our provincial corn yield this year might be over 170 bushels per acre on a very tough year. And so uh, what we have with foreign exchange, you know, you can contract corn here for five Canadian dollars uh, a bushel for next year. And lots of it was sold this year for five and six. And so Canadian producers um, have reason to plant corn, just like you do in the United States, uh, especially if you get uh, if you get uh, better prices. But that has more to do with corn genetics than it does the corn economy. Because it's pretty hard to be bullish about anything in grains uh, right now in terms of going ahead. There will be market opportunities like there always is. But with this erosion in demand, as well as all these acres coming on stream for next year, and all of the, um, all of the production that's coming on in Brazil, um, you know, the United States is going to be a residual supplier to the world of soybeans uh, unless Brazil has a problem. Um, so it's pretty hard to be bullish now, but if, if I was asked one thing, I would say corn, but it's more because of the way, the way corn grows and its genetics than, than the economics, because the economics in the market picture right now 
isn't isn't the best. Isn't the best, and and uh, we'll hope for good things, but hope is not a marketing plan. No, it's definitely not, Phil. Before we let you go, remind our listeners how they can get in touch with you if they'd like to chat more about your perspective on social media. <laughs> well, you can follow me on Twitter at Agridome, or you could send me an email at philip at philipshaw.ca, or maybe, if you're lucky, you can watch Market to Market and see I ask a question from time to time, and you can see my Twitter handle there. But it all depends if it gets included. But uh, Oh, I like to, uh, I like to include yours. All right. Well, thanks so much, <laughs> Phil, for sharing your perspective today with us. It was certainly uh, it was certainly a privilege and a pleasure to share a podcast and talk to you, Delaney, as well as you, Mike. I've watched both of you for a long time, and I respect what you've done with your career, and you're a credit to American agriculture. I do appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks again to Phil there. We always interact with him on Twitter, Mike, but it's nice to finally hear the voice behind the man that a lot of us probably interact with on Twitter. Absolutely. Find him at Agridome on Twitter. You can also interact with us at Ag News Daily on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And as mentioned earlier, be sure to visit our website, agnewsdaily.com, and sign up for our newsletter. With that, Delaney Howell, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.